And in the meantime, we are here to uh, talk about the very subject of possessions. And so will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a man stands in the darkness as the sky in the east begins to turn light and gray. And he stands warming himself at a fire that has been burning all night. And as he stares into the embers at the edge of the fire, he is completely oblivious to the sound of sandaled feet shuffling across the pavement, to the sound of the breakfast dishes being gathered somewhere in a kitchen, to the sound of livestock being prepared to be turned out for the day. He's oblivious to the, the voices that are talking at a, at a louder than usual timber, or the excitement in those voices and the agitation in the voices. He's just staring into the fire. His name happens to be Simon Peter. And he's been through a very brutal night. His rabbi, his teacher, the one who has been leading them toward Jerusalem, was arrested in the night, woke Peter up out of a sound sleep in the garden at Gethsemane under a bright moon, and he was dragged off. And if you've ever heard the sound of somebody hitting another person, you never lose that sound. And he could hear them striking his friend Jesus, his teacher Jesus, his master, his rabbi, as they carried him off. And Jesus never made a sound as they taunted him and tortured him. And Peter is standing by the fire. What goes through your mind on a night like that? Really nothing because of the numbness and the shock and the, the adrenaline of the moment. It overtakes us. But he can remember glimpses of things. And in his heart sickness at what was happening, he remembers Jesus first walking up to him and saying, hey, put down those nets. Come and follow me. From now on, you're going to be catching men. He remembered how Jesus ordered that the nets be let back down in the deep waters again. And, and when they took them back up, these men who had fished all night and caught nothing had caught a, a load so large that it took two boats to drag it to the shore. He remembered how joyful it was. As his life took on a different direction and a new meaning, and he remembered the fragments of the last three years, the miracles, the healings, the teaching, the, the wisdom, the pure love in this rabbi's eyes, and his insistence that things needed to be different than they were, that we are so much more than what we've become, that we are better than what we have turned out to be, and that God intends for us to be able to throw off the shackles of the sin that clings around us and to rise up to the full stature of what God intended us to be, and that it didn't matter what had brought people to Jesus. He changed them, and they never walked away the same. And Peter never wanted to be anywhere else. And here he was beside the fire, warming himself, 
trying to warm himself. There are nights, you know, when the cold outside makes you shiver. But there are some nights when the heart grows so cold that you shiver from the inside out. And then through the fog of his grief, through the wondering of it, if it could get any worse than this, her voice pierced into his consciousness. Hey, hey, you're one of his disciples. You know, when all you've got left of your world is the fire in front of you, it's really hard to let go. Couldn't even believe he was saying it. No, no, I'm not. Sure you are. You have his accent. You're a Galilean. You're one of his disciples. No. No, I swear it, I'm not. This man is also one of his disciples, she was telling her friends, and he swore a third time. Not, I swear to God, I'm not, but to condemn the one whom he called his master. He hurled a curse toward Jesus. And Jesus, Luke says, looked him right in the eye in that moment. Without a word passing, Peter realized what had happened. Now there's not even a fire, but a man utterly broken that he could not do the very thing he swore he would do better than anyone else. Just absolute brokenness. Hmm. Discipleship is not easy. Jesus had said on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus may have been the only one who knew what he was talking about. The disciples certainly didn't. And Jesus began blathering on about counting the costs of things. If you're going to build a tower, if you own a little small farm and, and you want to keep a lookout for the pests and the things that are going to come and intrude, if you want to protect your vineyard, you build a little lookout tower and you hire a guy to stand up in there and then if the neighbors come over and try to poach the grapes, you can shoo them off. But if you're going to build that tower, you sit down first and you pull out your calculator and you pull out the Home Depot shopping list and you figure out if you can afford to build the darn tower. Otherwise, you've torn up 15 or 20 vines out of the ground and you've laid a foundation and then you never finish it. And the, the neighbors come walking in and they laugh at you because you couldn't finish what you started. Hey, all you students who are going to have finals in a couple of months, remember, finish what you started. Remember, at the beginning of the semester, it's easy to have high-minded thoughts about what you're going to do, but the, but the term papers are going to become due sooner than you think. So finish up, right? Finish well. We love to teach our children to do these things, but we as adults have to remember. Jesus went on to say, not just the people who build towers, but mighty kings, mighty kings sit down, and if they're being threatened by a rival king, they sit down with their war council and they decide, now do we have enough resources, do we have enough men and women, do we have enough 
arrows? Do we have enough swords? Do we have enough that if we had to go to battle, we could defeat the person in front of us? Do we have enough to get this done? And if the war council says, no, we really don't, then the king does the prudent thing. Before starting a war, he sends and he sues for terms of peace. These are the stories Jesus told. These are the things that Peter began to remember on that cold and dark night when his Lord was taken away from him. In the day that the crucifixion started, Peter remembered Jesus talking about counting the cost of discipleship. It ain't easy. Jesus had said, if you come after me and you don't hate your father and mother or your wife or your children or your brothers and sisters, any of you who are having family squabbles right now say, check, I've done it. I can do it. But you have to remember that the word hate here is a Semitic word used in the time of Jesus that had nothing to do with emotions. It had to do with making a decision to walk away from one thing and turn our back on it in order to take up another thing. If you come after me, you've got to turn your back on what was, for our future doesn't lie in the past, and we have to walk into what is coming. With our eyes wide open and knowing what the cost will be, we have to make a turn. This is what it means to hate if that's not what Jesus had in mind, then every other teaching of Jesus and the rest of the church, in fact, the teachings of both the Old and New Testament would make no sense at all. It would completely invalidate everything. Jesus didn't say to stop loving the people in our lives. What he said was turn your back on the old ways. For the kingdom of God is the place where everybody becomes our mother and our brother and our sister and our wife or our husband, where everybody is loved as a valuable person in the kingdom. Jesus said, if you, don't, if you come after me and you can't take up the cross and carry it, you cannot be my disciple. And then he said, if you don't sell all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus, what are you talking about? Sell all my possessions? Possessions are how we know who's who in this world. The bumper sticker said it. You know it. Whoever dies with the most toys. Actually, the truth is, whoever dies with the most toys dies. That's the truth. But our world has set it up in such a way that we have to value who's important and who's not, who's meaning and who's not. And so we worship the people who have tons of possessions, who have all kinds of reputation, who are pop stars, whose name gets mentioned in every headline. These are the people we adore and we worship. Jesus is calling us to put that aside and turn our back on that whole mess. Yes, he is. Jesus is saying, that if we are attached to our possessions, we're not able to be his disciples. This is a strange scripture passage. 
Because Jesus looked out and a huge multitude was already following him. And instead of commending them and say, the more the merrier, you all come in. It's just fine in here. And everybody gets to be a disciple. Like Oprah Winfrey, you get to be a disciple. And you get to be a disciple. And look under your chair, you get to be a disciple. But instead, he spends three different ways to say who cannot be a disciple. Remember, as we conclude our Summer Travels with Jesus series, that Jesus has been marching to Jerusalem. This is the summer trip that he took. He's been talking all along about what must happen to the Son of Man. So when Jesus is talking about how costly the kingdom of God is, he's not just whistling Dixie. He's living it from the inside out. And not only are we afraid at times in our lives of what's going to happen to us, but we're afraid to acknowledge what happened to Jesus. The church walks away from the very mention of the cross so many times, and they take up instead the promise of more possessions, the promise of a bigger house, the promise of a, of a plain ride blessing where I accepted Jesus, I left my sins right there at the foot of the cross, and then whatever I do for the rest of my life, if I treat my neighbor like dirt, if I cheat uh, my business at, at work, if I do anything out of line, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I laid it at the foot of the cross. It just doesn't matter. It's all right there. God forgave my past sins. He'll forgive my future sins. It didn't take long for some of the people who had once followed Jesus to take that idea and say, if he's going to forgive my future sins, then on the count of three, let's all sin boldly. Let's go and get it over with. Let's, let's get all the beans out. Let's do it. This is not the kingdom of God, my friends. To just go on living out the things that we always desired, the things we always wanted, the things we always dreamed we'd have, and then just tape a little fish or a cross on top of it and say, now, I made all that stuff Christian. This is not discipleship to Jesus. To know what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to find a way to stand next to Peter at that fire and figure out how you're going to answer the question when the chips are down and everything's on the line and they ask you one more time, are you a disciple of Jesus? Maybe. As a spiritual director, let me give you something you can work with today. If there is anything in your life any object, any relationship, anything in your life that you could not set down and walk away from at the command of Jesus, then that thing is not your possession. That thing has possessed you. It's a chain around your ankle. It's a millstone around your neck. And I don't care what it is. When we were too young to even know better, Judy and I were sitting on the lawn in front of Armacost Library at the University of Redlands. We were engaged, deeply in love with, with the Lord and deeply in love with each other. And somehow the Holy Spirit prompted us to make a covenant with each other. As deeply as I am in love with you today, 
if the Lord needed you to be somewhere else or to go in a new direction, the best way I could express my love for you is to let you go and be obedient to the Lord. It's really easy when you're 19 or 20 years old to make that covenant together because you got a whole life in front of you. But as the sound of the beeping of our own ICU wards looms larger on the horizon, the reality of that covenant promise we made grows deeper and deeper and deeper. But there's nothing we can do for love except to let go of those things in our life so they don't weigh us down. Otherwise, we have no hope of joining our loved ones in the fullness of God's kingdom. We'll be too weighed down by the things of this earth. It's, is this making sense? Friday night, I was in San Bernardino preaching in the open air just like John Wesley. Uh, I'm a little too proud of that right now, but you'll pray for me and I'll get over it. But I told them that just a couple of weeks ago I had been in Ghana. And this particular year, this year in Ghana, they're calling the year of return. Because this is the 400th year. It's a commemoration of the 400th year since the first recorded bill of sale was written down for a slave from the west to be carried into the... or a slave from the east to be carried into the west. The first slaves of Africa left Africa 400 years ago. Headed for a new world. And in Cape Coast, in, in Ghana, there's a, a fortress, uh, a castle really, that was built expressly, expressly for the handling and processing of men and women who were going to become slaves. And they kept, kept them in hot, stultifying dungeons underground for two or three weeks to weaken them and pacify them. Then they hooked chains on them and they marched them through a tunnel that's, to be quite honest, only scarcely taller than the height of the edge of these pews. They had to crouch to get through them and the doors even smaller and they're chained together with heavy chains and this tunnel is nearly 70 yards long and their eyes haven't seen the bright sun and at the end of that tunnel is a small door cut in the wall of the castle. And they fling the door open, and the eyes are stabbed by the light. And on the high tide, rowboats have been floated up to that door. And the men and women, still chained together, are loaded into the rowboats. And they are rowed out to the ships where they are stacked like cordwood, where almost 20% of them will die in the journey across the Atlantic. There to go into the new world and to cut down the trees and till the fields and plant the crops and harvest the harvest and build the homes of people who now are deemed to own them. Wow. Some possessions are easier to give up than others, I suppose. But the power in that story is that I see a church in my generation still crawling down a tiny tunnel is being squeezed through little walls, little holes in the walls, still chained together, not by iron chains, but by spiritual chains, 
by things that have possessed them, by ideas that they can't let go of, by the notion that, that by buying and selling the things of this world, we will somehow advance ourselves or our children in this world when the only thing we live by as disciples of Jesus is the Word of God and the Word of life. We are still in chains, and I would see my people unshackled and set free. I would see God's people unshackled and set free. Do I think you should not live in the house you live in anymore? Of course not, unless Jesus told you not to. Do I think you should just go down and empty out all your bank accounts and just throw the money in the air? Of course not, unless Jesus has a need for it. But to come to understand that everything my hand touches and everything my life touches belongs to Jesus before it belonged to me, and that at any moment my master could come and ask me for something and I would need to let it go. If we can live in that place, we have begun to turn our back on what has possessed us and the chains will fall off and we will be set free indeed. This is how the church moves forward. When there's a need, we just meet it because God has already supplied. If there's a shortfall, we pitch together and we meet the need because God has already supplied. God will never ever call us to something that we ourselves don't have the resources to meet unless, unless we're holding on to things to such an extent that as we warm ourselves next to the things we believe we possess and somebody comes to us and says, are you a disciple of his? we find ourselves saying, well, not this time. <laughs> not this time. Hmm. When I was 39 years old, it's on my mind now because my son is about to be that age and that freaks me out, but uh, when I was 39 years old, I thought, I've been dreaming since I was five, and I used to see a television show called Ripcord. I've been dreaming about taking a skydive and parachuting. And... Uh, and I have been so motivated, I thought, if I do this when I'm 39, they won't call it a midlife crisis. And so out I went to Hemet Airport, and I got all geared up, and I watched the film, and I thought, I can do this, I can do this, and I got in this bucket of bolts of an airplane. I've had more pilots tell me I would never jump out of a perfectly good airplane. I said, you never saw that airplane. <laughs> I was motivated. And I knew that I wanted to do it. I knew that it was going to be exciting. And then I got up to 14,000 feet. And I looked straight down as my feet swung, uh, swung over the side of the plane. And every molecule of my being tried to say, nope. <laughs> there was a, an instructor that was with me, and we were going to make a tandem jump. Um, I could not have gone out the door that day if I hadn't done a lot of counting of the cost. And even though I had counted the cost, weighed all that in my mind, I still had second thoughts at the, at the final moment. The instructor, who thought he was a bit of a ca uh, card, you know, he leaned over to me and shouted through an 85 mile an hour breeze, I told your wife I would split the insurance with her. And <laughs> And then out the door we went. 
I won't bore you with all the rest of the details of the jump. But I got the privilege of saying for the rest of my life, yeah, I've skydived, and it's a blast. It's a blast. But it's the kind of thing you've got to count the cost ahead of time. If we count the cost of what it's going to mean to retire in this world, if we count the cost of what it would mean to buy a house, if we count the cost of what it would mean to buy that new car or to do this or to do that or to do the other, if we count the costs of what it would mean to skydive and weigh those risks and take the shot anyway, if we are so careful to count the cost in so many other things, how is it that we have raised a generation of Christians that think just by saying, yeah, I'll be a Christian, count me in, that means you all get to come in? The multitude that Jesus might have sent away that day when he told them why you cannot be my disciple, you cannot be my disciple, you cannot be my disciple, that multitude he sent away, I believe he sent away in love because they never could have followed him through what was going to happen next. For them and for countless multitudes afterward, they were going to need two things. They were going to need the witness of the resurrection, and they were going to need a few sturdy men and women who had gone through it ahead of them. And because Peter and James and John and Martha and all the others who followed Jesus all the way to the cross, went through what they went through. They became the shepherd guides for a multitude of others who would follow Jesus as his true disciples, letting go of the things of this world, turning their back on the systems of this world, no longer leveraging the things of this world to their own glory, but giving all praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ as Lord, to whom be all praise and glory and honor now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.